are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. And my wife says, somebody's in the house. And I freak out. Like, I lose it. Uh, I got my less than one-year-old in the next room, my wife here, and something inside me, I, I, just, I just jump out of bed and... Um, I start going through this door beside the bed and, and in there there's supposed to be like a, like a gun, right? So I go looking for the gun. Like, I don't know what to do with it when I find it, but I, I go looking through it for the, for the gun and uh, I finally find it and I turn to look at my wife and from somewhere on her side of the bed, she's produced a shotgun. I don't know where it came from. Uh, and she takes it, she rolls it on its side so she can see the shell chamber as she racks the slide. She looks at me and says, let's go because my wife's from Mississippi and uh, that's how girls from Mississippi are. And so I jump up out of bed and I'm like, hey, listen, you stay here. You stay here. I'm gonna go find out what's happening. And if anybody but me comes back through there, you shoot them with that shotgun you found. And so I go down the hall and I hear the dog and I scream for this dog. I said, Bean, come here. And Bean comes running and I've never seen him like this. He's foaming at the mouth. I am freaking out. He sits beside me and he's just bristled And I lean up against the wall and I don't know what else to do. So I just yell, hey, take whatever you want. Just please don't come down the hall. Take whatever you want. Just, you cannot come down the hall. About that time, I feel something tap me on the shoulder. In 10 years of my life, right off the end of my life, gone. My wife taps me on the shoulder. I turn, my wife is there and she's like, hey, shh, Gibson's asleep. I go, you've lost your mind. I need you to go back into the bedroom, please. And so she goes back into the bedroom. I scream, hey, if, please don't come down the hall. As soon as I scream, please don't come down the hall, I hear bong, 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 bong. Someone's playing the piano. Which I almost just melted because you've gone from someone who's going to steal your TV to somebody wearing a clown mask, right? Like if you yell, I have a gun, and they play the piano... They're for sure wearing a clown mask. And so like, I'm like, oh my God. So I go around, I come around the corner like Charlie's Angels, right? Like I'm, and so I begin to walk down the, down the, down the hall to, to the, through the kitchen. And through the kitchen, I, I can see up on the piano, on the other side of the kitchen, there uh, are these two eyes staring at me. And they jump down and begin to walk out. It was a raccoon. It had snuck in the house. And Bean had scared it up on the piano. So I go, Running back into the bedroom. I remember my wife has a gun, so I drop to the ground and roll. Uh, and I go, ah, oh, don't shoot, it's me. She's like, idiot. And so uh, I stand up and I go, well, she goes, what is that? I go, it's, it's a raccoon. She's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I have no idea. Go, what are we going to do? And so what I end up doing is I put on all the clothes that I own. I don't know if you ever had to do that. But I start putting on layer after layer. My thinking is if it has rabies and tries to bite me, maybe it can't get through seven shirts. And so I, got, I just put on all these shirts and I go back out and, and Bean and I patrol the house. And I guess it went out the way it came, I guess it went out the way it came in. Um, we no longer have a dog door, by the way. And as I lay in bed that night, I remember thinking, I couldn't sleep. My adrenaline was rushing. I, I remember thinking, how scary it was that everything that I have in life that I love, like how clear it became for a minute that everything that I love could just be taken away from me in a second. Like how, how little grasp I actually had on the things that I hold dearest. And, and the reality is that that's just what life, life in exile is like, right? We live in exile. We, we this is not our home. Um, we're just passing through. And, and one day Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make all things new. But in the meantime, while we are here, Man, our, our grip is so 
loose on the things that we hold most dear. The, the amount of control that we think we have, the amount of, of, of ability to, to, to manage our own lives. My goodness, man, isn't it true that most of us, we can't even manage our own thoughts and feelings, much less our lives, right? And, and so to hold on to these things is so difficult and so scary. I think it drives so much of the fear today that we have is that we know that we can't control this. But this is what life in exile has always been like. And that, that's one of the things that I've loved about Esther. It's this story about what living in exile is like. And it's, it's super fascinating to me that we can, we can learn about what God is like from a book that doesn't even mention his name. Uh, I, I love that we can, we can study and look at what happens in, in this, this one story, and it has something to do with how I live my life. And so I know that you guys have been, been studying this story. It, it primarily centers around these two Jewish people, uh, Mordecai, and Hadassah, or, or, or Esther is her, her, her uh, Persian name she goes by. Uh, and, and so this story that centers around these two Jews living in a place that they're not supposed to be. They're living in a place that's not their home. When, when they're introduced to this story, it's, it's in Persia. It's taking place in Persia. And we're introduced to them. And when we're introduced to them, it's these Jews, the, the, the immediate kind of response is, well, they're not supposed to be there. God has liberated them. They should be able to go back to Jerusalem. Why are they still there? Not only that, it seems like they've just kind of assimilated part of the culture, just living there, hanging out. And uh, so we're introduced to these people and, and what's happening in their lives. And, and so Esther's is through this crazy set of circumstances, this, this I'm going to call it a beauty contest to be nice. I, I, if you haven't read it yet, go read it. It's, a, it's as brutal as it sounds, maybe, maybe more so. Uh, but she's found herself queen in Persia. And this interesting thing happens. Mordecai, at the end of chapter 2, her uncle, uh, he fools a plot. He overhears a conversation. And he fools a plot against the king, which is super interesting because the king was a terrible human being. So why would he foil a plot against the king? But he does. So he fools this plot. And so what you'd expect to happen after this is some kind of reward. But what happens at the beginning of chapter three is that Mordecai is not rewarded. But this guy named Haman is rewarded. It's a bit surprising. H Haman is promoted. Uh, and, and, and he's promoted into this place where um, he has so much influence in the king that he actually convinces the king that it should be a rule that when he goes, walks down the street, everybody should bow down to him. <laughs> and Mordecai says, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. We don't really know why. The text doesn't tell us. The narrator is really good about like, leading us in a certain way, but not like, outright saying a thing. So the, the narrator doesn't tell us exactly why, but it seems like, and I, and I believe, and I'm, I'm convinced that, that the reason that he doesn't bow down, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, uh, at least one of the reasons is an awakening faith, a reminder of who he is, that, that you're not supposed to bend the knee to anybody but God. And so, so he refuses to bow, and this makes Haman so mad. And part of the reason he probably makes him, makes him so mad is there's actually like a, a long history of the Jewish people, the Israelites, and, and the descendants uh, or the family of Haman. Uh, there's a long, long history. It, one of the oldest enemies of the Jews, Haman's the descendant of them, the Amalekites. Amalekites. I said that wrong. It's okay. We'll keep moving. Uh, and so he's a descendant of them. So there's this long history of this kind of conflict between them. But, but he gets so angry that Mordecai refuses to bow down that he actually decides to plan for the entire genocide of the Jewish people. He's going to kill them all. It's not good enough just to punish Mordecai. He's going to kill all of them. And as a matter of fact, in verses, verse 13, it says this at the end of chapter 3. It says that letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. He has it set up where a law is passed and they basically put it on horses and send it to every corner of the Persian Empire that on this single day, hey, you know what? Not only are you not going to face any consequences for standing up and killing Jews, you can take their stuff, you can plunder all their goods, and we encourage you to do it. It's unbelievable. This absolute massacre of the entire people of God is what is planned. I can't imagine how Mordecai must have felt. This is what he did. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes. and He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up into the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, if somebody did this today, it would seem overly dramatic to us, right? Hey, I get that you're sad, but you're drawing a lot of attention to yourself, right? But this is not unusual. This is kind of language, not just in the Jewish culture, but in a lot of cultures that you would have kind of expressed outwardly this inner angst, this inner turmoil, this inner sadness. And so Mordecai does this. He, he rips his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he puts ashes on his head, and he goes around just wailing. Can you imagine what he's going through? I mean, not only is his life threatened, in, 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 in 11 months' time, this, this edict's going to happen. And so not only is his life threatened, but the life of all of his people, the people that he has, he's never even met, family he has back in Jerusalem, 600 miles away, like all of his family, their entire life is at threat. It's threatened, and threatened. And so not only that, like he, he kind of, he played a big role in this. Yes, he was trying to be obedient maybe, but he plays a big role in this, right? It was his actions that triggered this edict. Can you imagine the guilt that he felt? Can you imagine the sadness that he felt? He's just overwhelmed and he just goes into this season, not just him, but all of the Jews go into this season of lamenting. I, I don't like to be sad. I hate it. I don't know many people who do like to be sad, but like, part of living in exile, part of having, having faith, living a faithful life in exile, because this is not our home, and we're waiting for Jesus to come and, and give us a new and make us a new one. He's, he's gone to make us a new one, and he's going to come make this place all new. And, and while we're waiting, I think that the, the part of life in exile, having faith in, in, in exile, part of that's just going to be lament. It's going to be being sad. And I don't, I don't know that I grew up understanding that very well. And maybe it was just the tradition I grew up in. And maybe it wasn't even their fault. Maybe it's just what I heard. But, but I wanted to take everything. And I want to immediately kind of get an intellectual answer for it, right? I, I just, just give me the theology to handle the thing that's in front of me. So every time, so for example, maybe someone, maybe this has happened to you, that you've been at a really low point in your life and someone looks, looks at you and says, hey, you know what? God has a reason for this. Here's what I need you to know. I believe that with all my heart. I believe with all of my heart, all of my being, that God is sovereign and that whatever you're going through right now in your life, good or bad, that God is in control of that. And that I believe with all of my being that there is a reason for the suffering that we go through, that is to prepare us for us a glory that we could never even imagine in somehow, some way that that's working. You know what I've learned though? Uh, in my 45 years, I finally got around to figuring this out, that there's a time that that doesn't need to be said though. In Romans 12, Paul says this interesting thing. He's talking to them about how to live the Christian life. And one of the things he says is, hey, you know when people celebrate, you should celebrate with them. 
And when they weep, you should weep with them. He doesn't say when they weep, you should theologically correct them. He says you should weep with them. We are emotional beings. Part of being human is having emotions. And that comes from somebody who's probably the worst in the world. My training is in engineering. Like, I'm that way. Like, the guy with the, like, that's me. Like, I'm wired that way. But being emotional is part of what it means to be human and to weep with those who weep. That's why it's so important to know now, before you go through deep suffering and deep sorrow, that God is doing a thing. It's the thing that holds you once you're in suffering. It's the, one that, the thing that holds you, that, that comforts you, that God is in control. But it's not the thing that you necessarily want to hear when you lose someone close to you. We weep with those who weep. And so lamenting is something that we need to do. There's a biblical way to do it. And it's all through scripture. Uh, one of my, two of my favorites, I mean, just a little piece, Psalm 44, is this whole, uh, this whole lament. At the very end of it, though, it says this. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And that's where it ends. There's no like, but I trust you. It ends, hey, we're dying, where are you? Lament. Psalm 88 is another one. It ends this way. But, oh, but I, O oh Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayers come before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept before me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's how it ends. It's crazy to me that there was someone who wrote that psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then walked down to the temple and gave it to the priest there and said, hey, put this on file. Somebody else is going to need this. One day someone's going to need to weep this way. One day somebody else is going to feel this way, and they're going to need these words to pray and to sing. So go put this on file for them. Lamenting is part of our life here, and it's part of being faithful, because when you lament, part of lamenting is the helplessness, right? Part of lamenting is, hey, you know what? I, if I could do something about it, if I could fix the problem, I wouldn't lament. Lamenting arises when I re recognize that I need a Savior, I need someone to come and rescue me. That is why I'm lamenting, is because it is a situation beyond me that I cannot handle. And so we find in this story that, that faith, faith sometimes in an exile, there's going to be lament. There's going to be sadness and there's going to be sorrow. And there's going to be a biblical lament and a biblical longing for salvation. And that's what Mordecai does. When Esther's young women, this is verse 4, and her eunuchs came and, and told her that the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hatash, and one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to tend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and, and why it was. And Hatash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hattash went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hattash and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, 
all the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out this golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. So Mordecai reaches out to her. She reaches out to Mordecai and says, says, hey, listen, what's going on? She's a little bit detached. She's been living in the palace, right? She's living living the life of the queen. She's not even mentioned in chapter three, by the way, at all. She's been kind of absent from the story. There's this this great storyteller has kind of showed us the detachment that she is, how detached she is kind of from the story. And so she's been living up in the palace and, and, and doesn't know what's going on. So she hears that Mordecai is like covered himself in, in sackcloth and ashes. And so she says, hey, go find out what's going on with my, with my uncle. And they go, they report, she's like, take him some clothes. Like he won't take them. What's going on? And so he sends back the information of what's, what's happening. The, 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 the Jews are going to be slaughtered. And he says, here's what you need to do. I need you to reverse what I told you to do before. Remember at the beginning when you were going to be in this, let's call it a beauty contest, and I told you not to tell them that you're a Jew? I need you to go tell them that you're a Jew now. I need you to go tell them that you're of the Israelites. And her response is, you've lost your mind. Well, that's not exactly what it says, but roughly, he's like, you've you got to be kidding me. You want me to go into the king's presence? Hey, here's what happens if somebody goes into the king's presence without being called by him. You get killed. That's what happens to people who just show up. I mean, if, if I was like in great favor with him and he was like madly in love with me, maybe he hasn't even talked to me in 30 days and you want me to just show up? That's how people get beheaded. Are you crazy? That's her response. Her response is, you've got to be kidding me. And all of the story has kind of been leading to this point. Like everything's been building up to this point, to this moment where Esther has to make a decision about what she's going to do. She has to make a choice. She has on her hands an identity crisis. Is she Hadassah or is she Esther? Is she going to identify with the people of God or is she going to identify not identify with the people of God and just keep living her life in the palace. Just keep living her life in the kingdom. Living her, her life uh, in the pagan land. Is she going identif- to identify with God's people or isn't she? And she has to make this decision. This woman who her entire life has basically been a pawn in powerful men's game. She has to make a decision to act. Because this whole story, like it's kind of crazy, right? Like the the... The empire-wide results, the empire-wide consequences of the decisions of a few powerful men is crazy. She must have felt, even as queen, powerless. I can't even go see my own husband without being afraid I might be killed. And you want me to stand up? She has to make this decision. Uh, There's this uh, woman, uh, she was a... Um, German-American. She was Jewish, but she was a philosopher, a political thinker. She's a writer. Her name was Hannah Arendt. Arendt. And uh, she uh, covered the 1961, or she wrote about the 1961 trial of uh, this guy named Eichmann. He was, a, he, was a, he was this guy who was in charge during the, World War, during the war um, of uh, getting people into concentration camps. That was his job. He sent millions of people uh, two concentration camps. He was kind of the one who got them on the trains and, and, and kind of directed where it would go. Millions of people at his hand went to trial, uh, went, to, to, went to their death in awful ways. 
internment camps and concentration camps. They were murdered. Uh, so they find him, and in 61, he goes to trial. And everybody basically kind of expects uh, this like, evil incarnate to show up, right? And it's not. Like, he's not. He's this little old bureaucrat. He's just a guy. And in the trial, he says this. He goes, well, I don't dislike the Jews at all. I was just doing my job. And everybody's kind of stunned. What do you do with this? Like, we want him to be evil. And she writes this. She, talks, she calls it the banality of evil. And she writes this. She, she says that sad, the sad truth is, is that most evil in the world is, is uh, most evil, uh, even the world is, sorry, most evil in the world is committed by people who never decide to do good or evil. It just happens. It's just my job. I was just here. She says that basically what she says is most people just, just drift into what happened. They don't make a decision either way. They just kind of show up and just do. And here Esther arrives at a moment where she has to make a decision. She has to choose what it is to do. And, and here's the thing. I think that kind of my immediate reaction to this is, yeah, but that's not me. Right? Like I, I'm never going to be in a position where I have to make a choice that impacts a life, life and death for millions of people. Like that's not the life that I live. I don't live in a place where my decisions have that kind of impact. But the reality is, the truth is, that what, what Scripture teaches is, and, and what experience kind of shows and, and, and we, we realize quickly through experience is this, is that we make hundreds of little decisions every single day that shape us that affect the people around us, that impact us. Here's the deal. You, you may never be in a place where you're going to have to make a decision about the life and death, where you have to, to choose whether or not to stand up for Jesus or not. But you're going to make hundreds of decisions every single day about whether or not to stand up for Jesus. And they're going to shape you. Let, 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 me, let me give you a controversial example. Imagine that you're on the internet one day and someone says something stupid. I know it's hard to believe, but it happens, believe it or not. And you feel in your righteousness that you must be the one to correct this person for saying something stupid on the internet. And you choose in that moment whether or not you're going to be gentle and kind or not. I'm going to say something incredibly controversial. Gentleness and kindness are fruits of the Spirit. There are things inside of us that the Holy Spirit is working, and, and, and that if they're not present in our language, and trust me, this is saying, this is from someone who, who suffers from this. If gentleness and kindness are not part of us, then we need to do some searching and find out why gentleness and kindness aren't part of who we are. Because they're fruits of the Spirit. Something of the Spirit works inside of us. So you're online and you can choose, do I, do I just keep on scrolling? Do I, do I, do I be kind and gentle? Do, do I react in righteous outrage, or, or maybe this, and I know this sounds crazy, but do I invite them to coffee and have a conversation with them and try to bridge a gap? We make tiny little decisions about whether or not being to be kind and gentle every single day, and believe it or not, it's revealing who we are, and it's shaping who we're becoming. We make tiny little decisions every single day of whether or not we're going to listen to what Jesus has to say, or we're not. Are we going to identify with Jesus, or aren't we? That is us all the time. You may not think it has worldwide consequences. You may not believe that it's a big deal, but I promise you that that is what is happening in the Christian life. Every single day, is Jesus my Lord or is he just here as an advisor to me? We make these decisions every day, whether or not we're gonna stand up, who we're gonna identify, whether or not we're gonna get up and we're gonna use that time and read our Bible or not. It's hard, I admit that. 
It's sometimes it's hard to get up and read my Bible. You know it's not hard? Just go to home. That, that, episode, that next episode just plays. You don't even have to press a button. It just, like the next episode, just right there, Tiger King again, just like right after one after the other. It's crazy. I don't have to do anything. The hardest part of that is remembering where I fell asleep yesterday and rewinding to that spot. Or do I stop it and do I read my Bible, which is not always easy. It was written in a foreign language some thousands of years ago. Do I sit down and struggle through it? Do I pray? Am I going to be obedient or am I just going to let that play? Every day we're making these decisions in how we teach people and what we do or how we treat people and what we do. This happens after that. I told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them, this is verse 12, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jew, for, the, for the Jews and from other, some, for some other place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All right, hold on a second. I'm sorry there. I, I, I would argue that this is probably maybe the climax of the book, right? Like the tension is at its highest level and there's like been this hopeless thing, right? Like the Jews are gonna be exterminated and then there's a glimmer of hope and then Mordecai pushes her and says, who knows? Echoing, by the way, Joel and, 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 and Jonah, who knows? Maybe your entire life has been built for this moment. Then he says this. Uh, who, who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom in such a moment as this? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is amazing. So Esther, this, this young woman, all of this is placed on her, and she says, okay, yeah, let's do it. And, and I think that it's too easy to read this as kind of like a c'est la vie, such is life. But that's not what this is. It's not some stoic, so be it. I think this is resolved to be obedient. Okay. You know what? If this is what it is, fine. I think that perhaps something is awakening in her. Some faith is awakening in her because she's been living in the king's palace and it's not like she's like, it doesn't tell us like she was doing underground Bible studies, right? Like she's just been, like nobody knew she was a Jew, right? He's like, hey, you know the secret you've been keeping? I need you to break it. So I think there's some kind of God is awakening comes some kind of faith in her and, 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 and says, she says, listen, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna go do that. I'm, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do whatever it is. You know what? You guys go fast for me. You pray for me. I think the faith has been awakened in her in a new way. And that's fascinating to me. Faith is a weird thing in exile. It's an interesting thing. It's a, it's a mysterious thing. God is going to use the faith of this young woman to save all the people. And I'm not an advocate of, a, of having a weak faith. Faith is something that we work on, something, something grows as we trust. The things that we do shape and, and mold our faith. A few years ago, um, a few years ago in, uh, during childbirth, my, we lost a son. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't, we knew it was going to happen. Um, 
some testing had been done, so we, we knew that he, he wouldn't make, uh, make it through childbirth. Um, my wife's faith in that moment changed my life. Not my faith. I was a preacher. I was a pastor. It was my wife's faith that stunned me in that moment. Her belief that God was good somehow in that moment rocked me to my core, that someone could have faith like that. And so a lot of people asked, I overheard them ask her, how are you doing this? How are you, how are you, how are you able to, to go on? And I think that what they meant was, how do you summon up that much faith to believe that God is good in something like this? And, and, and let me tell you this. My wife did not summon up some faith in a moment, some, some extraordinary amount of faith in some moment. My wife's faith was shaped every morning when she got up and read her Bible and prayed. It's a very boring thing to do, right? But her faith was strengthened in that. When she sang songs, when she went on mission trips, when she worked at Centrifuge, that's right, it was a Christian camp, she went and did that. All those kind of cliche things going up. She did all those things, and her faith was shaped in all of those things. And people were cruel to her, and she chose to be patient and kind. Her God was working inside of her to grow her faith. She didn't summon up the faith in some moment. Faith in exile is that way. It's a thing that God places inside us, and the Holy Spirit grows. But it's also a thing that we must be attentive to. It's a thing that is shaped by the way that we live. Faith in exile is like this, but here's the key thing about it that I want to say. The whole reason I showed up today was to say this. What matters more than the strength of your faith is the power of the object of your faith. I think that we think if our faith is strong enough, nothing will go wrong. And here's what I want you to know. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the power of the God our faith is in. It's the faith in Jesus Christ that, our, that, that, that matters. It's his strength. Because I, I'm going to tell you this. There's going to be times in your life, in the Christian life, in the Christian walk, on this Christian journey, there's going to be times when your faith is too weak to hang on. You feel like your faith is too weak to hang on. Here's the good news. Jesus is the one that hangs on to you. It says, it says, I'm convinced that there's nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Not because my faith is so strong, not depth, not height, no, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not because my faith is so strong, because Jesus is so strong. So whether I have the weak, beginning baby faith of Esther or a strong, mature faith, what matters most is the power of the object of our faith, which is the God who sent galaxies spinning across the universe. The God who, while we were still enemies, died for us. That is the object of our faith, and that's what matters. How deeply he loves us, how deeply powerful he is. It is not so much how deep my faith is. But when I face sin and death and the great giants that we face, the evil enemies that we face in our life, what matters most when I face death is not how strong my faith is, but my faith is in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is the one that has accomplished these things on my behalf. It's his righteousness that counts for mine, no matter how many times I stumble and fall. It's that he is sitting at the right hand of God that matters. I don't know what you're going through, right? Like that's not a thing I can know, unless we sit down and talk. But, but here's what I do know. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, my God does not make mistakes. 
You're not there by accident. Your job's really hard right now. I'm so sorry. It's not a mistake. Have you screwed up repeatedly? And maybe you're in a position because of your own doing. It's not a mistake. My God uses even those kinds of things. That's how powerful he is. Who knows? Maybe God has you where you are for just this moment. Who knows? Who knows what God can do? Here's what I do know. That the obedience of the humblest and weakest of us is more powerful than the actions of kings and rulers. Because who knows what God will do with your obedience? Who knows? But I know this, that our obedience is so much more powerful. Even if I don't see it play out, our obedience to this king, Jesus, is so much more powerful than any Xerxes, than any authority. Esther, poor Esther, she's just a pawn in the hands of these powerful men. At least that's what it looks like. By every human metric, that's what it looks like. But with her obedience, man, God changes everything. Choose this day whom you will serve. Follow Jesus. It is so worth it. He's preparing for us, no matter where you are, what you're doing, for glory far beyond anything that you can ever imagine. And who knows what he'll do with your obedience. Maybe it's for this moment that he's brought you here. Let's pray. Father, it's too good. It's too good to know that you've revealed yourself to us in a book. You've shown us what it's like, what it means to be obedient. You've taught us these things. You've revealed your nature by coming to earth and dying on a cross so that we might see what love looks like in flesh. So what I want is, what we ask is that you change us. The Holy Spirit, that you work inside of us to take faith and plant it deep inside of us, to take rocky ground resistant of the gospel and break it up so that we might know life, that the gospel might take purchase in new places in our heart, in new places in our lives, and, and that, that, that it's fertile ground for grace and peace, patience, love, kindness, goodness, mercy to grow. Teach us. Teach us what it is. Show us what it means to follow you. Make us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, based on who he is and what he's done. Not who we are and what we've done, but it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to emmanuelwithanibirmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.